Animals and nature have the such power to do good for individuals and for society. And we've got to embrace that. And to be honest, I think that's a huge role for the zoo going forward. Thanks for tuning in to episode five of season one, We Blue Dot, a conservation podcast. Enjoy listening. Welcome everybody and thank you for tuning in to another episode of We Blue Dot. We are delighted to be joined today by David Field, CEO of the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland. David has a wealth of experience in conservation and zoological collections, including the Zoological Society of London, Dublin Zoo and the Zoological Society of East Anglia, to name a few. He is the current president of the Association of British and Irish Wild Animal Keepers, and we're delighted to have him on the show. So with that, David, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Kate. Pleasure to be here. So where are you joining us from today and how, how have you been doing this last crazy year? Well, today I'm joining you from Edinburgh Zoo. I'm, um, I'm here in the, the mansion house and I get a wonderful wonderful office that out of my window I can see the banteng in uh, from one window <laughs> and uh, normally the gibbons swinging um, yeah. effectively through the trees from, <laughs> from my other window usually calling out at this time in the morning so uh, yeah I to be honest I, I've been incredibly incredibly lucky and fortunate because um, although I changed zoos in the middle of the pandemic, and mm-hmm. if you promised not to tell anybody, I, I had to sneak over the border during the lockdown <laughs> as I moved uh, institutions. But, you know, there's something about being in a zoo um, throughout this time, and I've had to come in each day mm-hmm. um, to support my staff and uh, and assist in, in just running of the organisation. Mm-hmm. But there's just something magical about being in a zoo uh, when there's loads of people, it's amazing. When it's empty, mm. it's even more, just a, a crazy time. I mean, there's, 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 there's the opportunity to really closely interact with animals. The animals do react differently. Yeah, of course. They, they, they used to people being in, so they, they themselves were wondering what was going on. Mm-hmm. I had great times with Valu, our little chimp. So mm-hmm. I'd go and have playtime with him, mm-hmm. you know, because he really does enjoy interacting with the public. So, mm-hmm. you know, I would be his play chums. <laughs> so to be honest, I've been extremely lucky mm-hmm. in being able to have that outside space, that mm-hmm. access to nature that the, the people have craved during, during this time. Yeah. Um, so aside from that, there's been a few financial challenges for the zoo yeah, uh, and where we were going. But, um, you know, in many respects, it's been a, a, a remarkable time for, for everybody. And we mm-hmm. all have our own stories and our own uh, reminiscences of this, of this time. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was a time when actually Edinburgh and Scotland fell in love with their zoo again. Mm-hmm. And it's been an, a, an amazing experience to see that love from the community mm-hmm. for the zoo. Yeah, no, and, and as you said, I mean, the work doesn't stop, even though lockdown was going on, all the keepers and stuff would still have to be in looking after the animals throughout it all. So, as you say, I can imagine what it was like, even though there were no visitors, there was still still all the animals and all the staff in there keeping it going. Well, absolutely. And, you know, the, the old phrase has been saying that we can't furlough a rhino keeper <laughs> um, or can't even furlough a rhino. But, you know, aside from that, there's been a whole tranche of other people 
-hmm. within the zoo that's that's okay some of our perhaps front of house staff mm -hmm. uh, have not been there but all those communication staff all mm -hmm. those marketing staff all those people that have been running our webcams yeah and our webcams have been just hugely popular the panda mm -hmm. cam mm -hmm. um has given so much joy and pleasure to people uh during this time mm -hmm. so we've had a whole load of staff who've had to have been here keeping the whole place running and actually you know the education department and i know kate you know a few of our education team <laughs> i do um, but we've been putting all of our material not just putting them online but making them interactive mm -hmm. so we've been able to do a whole range of 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 sessions of education sessions of virtual zoo stories of of virtual enrichment activities mm -hmm. with people and so it's been it's been full on for so so many people and i mm -hmm. think in many respects the zoo and indeed the highland wildlife park have been able to provide some degree of of service something back to the community mm -hmm. and for me that's a really important part of what we we do as an organization and need to do more as we go forward mm -hmm. i think one good thing to think of i mean to begin with perhaps people were a bit fed up with zoom and, and being online but but as you say, it's opened it up to a whole new audience of people who may be on the other side of the world who can join in activities online or people that perhaps couldn't normally access it. Um, I can't wait to be back in real life seeing people face to face. But I mean, we're doing this as well. So it's brought a whole array of new, exciting aspects, I think. Yeah, it's provided different, dare I say, opportunities. Mm -hmm. Or, or, or ways in which we can uh, and we can work and we can get things done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it has it increased the amount of meetings or decreased the amount of meetings. Mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure. It certainly de uh, decreased the amount of travel that we're having to meetings. Yeah. And you know, these have got major impacts for the way that we work going forward. Good impacts, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but we're a social primate. Mm -hmm. We need that interaction. Mm -hmm. And we're craving for that interaction, whether it's in our workplace, in our social place. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing it now with the zoo being open again, the chance for families mm -hmm. to get together. Yeah. We forget that the zoo and indeed other places of, of cultural and social importance are vital mm -hmm. for providing space for family time, mm -hmm. bonding time, social time. Mm -hmm. That's something that we've got to value. We've got to provide those forums, facilities, opportunities mm -hmm. for families to grow and bond. Mm -hmm. It's fundamental to our society. And even more so right now in an outdoor space, as you said, I mean, it's great to have the indoor spaces as well, but it's it's proven vital over the last year how much we need all these kind of outdoor attractions and outdoor areas that you can go and, as you say, have a fun day out. I mean, my memory, I'm one of six kids and we used to come across to Edinburgh Zoo quite often and it was a really exciting day out for us. And as you say, it was a family day out. And we obviously love animals, but the main focus was that we were all getting together and we were we were learning new things. Um, so that's definitely where I got a lot of my inspiration when I was a youngster. But Kate, you know that I've, I've heard that story so many times. Uh, over the past few months um, that people have written to us and said, look, we've heard you're, you're struggling at the moment with no no funding, etc. But it hold the zoo holds such an important part in my life in terms of coming with my grandmother or coming mm -hmm. with my grandfather or I can't wait to bring my grandkids that they really value the, the zoo as the institution. Mm -hmm. Now, 
in regard to all of our mission and our activities, they applaud all of that work as well. Mm -hmm. But for them, it was the the importance of of the zoo as a cultural and social institution. Mm -hmm. And we mustn't dismiss the the absolute importance of that Mm -hmm. in in the fabric of our society and what makes a good society. Yeah. So, well, I mean, while we're talking about it, do you want to just explain to anyone who's listening who might not have had the pleasure of visiting Edinburgh Zoo or the Highland Wildlife Park, can you tell us a wee bit about it? Because it's quite an old site, isn't it? Particularly the one in Edinburgh. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a glorious, uh, glorious place. Um, I worked here um, about 30 odd years ago as a Mm. as a zookeeper. All right. under the auspices of people like Roger Wheater and Miranda Stevenson. And, and Edinburgh Zoo at that time was right at the absolute forefront of how zoos were changing to become conservation organisations, becoming mm-hmm. modern zoos. And Edinburgh was, was one of the premier places, was mm-hmm. le- really leading on all of that. Mm-hmm. But, it's been, you know, the zoo itself had been here since sort of 1913. Mm-hmm. And, you know, terrific history and story. And, you know, built by uh, Thomas Gillespie and Patrick Geddes as a place for people in Edinburgh to get some social time, to get some fresh air mm-hmm. in a safe place. Amazing story, even then. Mm-hmm. Um, but the zoo grew. It had a it had a, a long history with the Salverson Whaling Company, mm. um, and indeed Salverson were the f- people that brought some of the first penguins to the zoo here. Mm. So our long-standing uh, relationship with with penguins, and we've been famous for penguins for many many years. Yeah. The Penguin Parade, which people might know about, mm-hmm. and you know, there's great debates about whether we should be doing a penguin parade or not. But I will defend it to the hilt because <laughs> it brings people and animals so close together, and people remember it, and it then they just want to learn more about penguins. Yeah. But then, you know, the other thing that the zoo the zoo is well, there's probably a couple of things. The other things that the zoo is famous for one that it's on a big hill mm-hmm. it's on a huge hill and you know edinburgh's full of old extinct volcanoes and amazing geology and we're on castorfin hill yeah so it's all part of your exercise and your and and tramping up and down that hill but it makes for a wonderful uh, setting for the zoo and some of our new enclosures these days instead of looking back up the hill like our new giraffe enclosure we've turned it round so people get some amazing view right across the Pentlands and across mm. the, the geography of Scotland. We've also been quite famous more recently for the pandas, mm-hmm. the giant pandas that came um, and the giant pandas that never bred and <laughs> the giant pandas' tails and tall, uh, 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 and whole ranges of different things. And, you know, I have to say I was quite, I was quite ambivalent Mm-hmm. about pandas mm-hmm. um you know i'd i'd had i had experiences with them in china um i even went to fed pandas with boris johnson in beijing zoo mm-hmm. once. Wow. <laughs> um, um but uh, i was quite ambivalent about them and you know but when i got here and i got the chance to sort of get really close and personal and and spend time with yang guan mm-hmm. man there's something about that animal he's yeah. just just glorious Mm. and he and he just inspires that an amazing emotional experience about anybody who gets a chance to sort of interact with him in any shape or form Mm. and Tian Tian you know she's just her her own lady (laughs) Um, but they're they're just incredible creatures happy to have the the panda debate um full on Mm -hmm. but you know they're beautiful inspiring gorgeous animals Mm -hmm. and then of course we've got the highland wildlife park which is up in near avimore just outside kingusi 
uh, a glorious rolling landscape set in the heart of the Cairngorms. We, and we focus particularly there on cold climate animals, as you probably expect, it's a bit cold up there, but you know, everything from polar bears through to Arctic foxes, through to some of our most prominent and important conservation projects at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Highland Wildlife Park, we're the headquarters for uh, the new Scottish wildcat project to reintroduce Scottish wildcats back to, to the Cairngorms. Yeah. But also um, we've got a huge focus on some of the native invertebrates. Things like pine hoverflies, which we're just building up a whole new breeding unit for pine hoverflies, Mm -hmm. which are almost extinct in the wild. But we have the largest population in a shed in Highland Wildlife Park at the moment. Mm -hmm. So the wildlife park is just glorious landscape. And as I say, you get some of the best views of polar bears you'll ever see. Yeah, I particularly love the snow leopards as well. I know you've got some up there, so they're one of my favourites when I go up to visit. Um, well, you've touched on a few of them, but can you give us a wee bit of an idea of the kind of variety of species in, in the likes of the zoo? Um, you've mentioned some up in the Highland Wildlife Park, but you've got quite a, a range, haven't you? At the zoo, we certainly do have a range, and it's a bit more sort of typical um, sort of zoo sort of list of species. Uh, we are reviewing that that species as we as we think about strategy and what different impact we want to make. Mm-hmm. But certainly, from giant pandas, uh, from tigers, uh, Asiatic lions, pygmy hippos, uh, a range of, of primates from crowned lemurs through to geladas. We've got an amazing chimpanzee group of West African chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. We've got some um, glorious sun bears, which which there are. Oh, they're just just beautiful animals Mm -hmm. so a a range broad range of collection of species at at the zoo um Mm -hmm. uh, but as i say we are going through a review and and the covid pandemic has made us question some of the species that we're keeping Mm -hmm. or whether we can afford to keep them you know we have looked at pandas and we are looking at pandas Mm -hmm. we are looking at koalas Mm -hmm. um uh, although again, when you see the new uh, the new Baby. Joey koala, oh, glorious. <laughs> um, but you know, there's other places like the monkey house used to be incredibly uh, expert here in in guenons, mm-hmm. um, but these days, you know, the monkey house is probably not what it should be. Mm-hmm. So, in actual fact, I'm going to close down the monkey house and mm-hmm. look to rebuild it and rehome some of those primates that are in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, I think I mentioned as well. Perhaps we are probably most famous for our penguins mm-hmm. king penguins gentoo penguins rock hopper penguins mm-hmm. you know is i spent many a year swimming in that pool cleaning <laughs> windows um but you know the penguins the penguins themselves they're right in the middle of their breeding season at the moment but uh you know there's some really interesting issues that we face with looking at those penguins mm-hmm. because the temperature in edinburgh is beginning to increase yeah and some of our penguins are subantarctic penguins mm. So we're starting to look and consider whether what have we got to do to keep them cool? Yeah. You know, a few years ago in Edinburgh, we didn't have these problems, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, uh, we now have to start thinking about how we care and continue to care for these species mm-hmm. with changing climates. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's definitely happening. Edinburgh isn't exactly the warmest place on the East coast, but, um, but no, it's a good point that you bring up. And we'll come back to that in a in a wee minute. But you you made me think there of if you're talking about animals, for example, and moving them around or moving them to somewhere else, can you explain a wee bit about how you how zoos work or modern zoos work in the likes of Britain and Europe? I mean, you all work together, don't you, to to kind of move animals around for different breeding programs and different reasons? Well, I think the, the first thing, yes, we do. There is the 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 zoo community is incredibly collaborative and it's and it's global. 
I've worked in in ranges of zoos from from Indonesia um, through Russia through uh, through the UK. But I think the very very first and most important thing to say is that the range of zoos varies dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, there is not one definition of a zoo. Mm. And indeed, even in the UK, there are some 400 plus licensed zoos, mm-hmm. huge amounts. Now, that does include anybody with a few meerkats or alpacas having to get a zoo license, mm-hmm. but that's good. Mm-hmm. But in the same way, with so many zoos, the quality, the, the mission, the mm-hmm. purpose, how good they are vary. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really, really important to identify at this point that not all zoos are the same. Mm-hmm. Those zoos that are part of global associations like the British Association or the European Association or the World Association of Zoos, we all go through very stringent accreditation processes, greater than the zoo licensing requirements, greater than the, le- the legislative requirements, really challenging the way that we work. Mm-hmm. Now, there's only a small proportion of zoos globally that are part of these associations. Mm-hmm. So actually, when we talk about how zoos work, we have to distinguish between those good and responsible zoos and yeah. those that, quite frankly, I'm trying to get closed down. Yeah, yeah. So um, in terms of good, responsible zoos, we work as a major collaborative community mm-hmm. working on uh, breeding programs for animals. Now, some of these breeding programs are about uh, main, maintaining populations of animals for zoos. Mm-hmm. Some of them are part of conservation programs as insurance populations, mm-hmm. and some of them are, are are actually going to be returned to their wild, or mm-hmm. at least their descendants going to be turned to their wild, returned mm-hmm. to the wild. And all these programs are run by dedicated individuals, stud bookkeepers, or program managers, which actually base all of their decisions about who gets to breed with who and which animal goes where. It's based on very stringent and well-defined demographic and genetic analyses. Mm -hmm. And there is a a global animal management system called ZIMS, which records millions of animal data sets. So an animal that's born in Edinburgh Zoo today will have its own identifiable number. We will know its pedigree and that will travel with it wherever it goes. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a COVID passport, isn't it? I probably (laughs) should say that. Um, uh, but it, we will be able to know and find out the best for that animal mm-hmm. and the best animal for it to breed with, etc. So there's some re- incredible science that goes behind these breeding programs to ensure that the animals and the populations are all healthy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I know this, obviously, because I've had the joy of working in zoological collections, but I think a lot of people I speak to and a lot of people that come in the door, you know, the visitors to the different zoos or aquariums or wherever, they don't realise all that work that kind of goes on behind the scenes. But that was part of the thing that I really enjoyed in the education side of, of teaching people, just letting them know kind of all the work, as you say, that goes on behind the scenes. It's not just as simple as moving an animal here and there. There's a lot more to it. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's quite a task anyway, to, if you want to move a giraffe from one side of the country to the other of or from, one, from the continent to here. But, you know, there is so much that goes on behind the scenes, whether it's about veterinary treatments and sharing vet. What's the best anaesthetic for a giraffe? You know, mm. vets across the globe have been working on this and sharing information. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the thing with zoos. We share our information 
so mm. that we can ensure the best of health and care for for these animals mm. and whether it be nutrition veterinary care husbandry techniques new training techniques with the animals mm. this is all shared amongst the zoos mm -hmm. and any of those zoos that i mentioned which perhaps are not some of the best mm -hmm. the first thing we will do is talk to them to try and get them to do the right thing mm -hmm. And we will work with them. We won't turn our backs on them immediately. Mm -hmm. We'll try and work with them mm -hmm. to try and raise their standards and raise their purpose. Mm -hmm. And if they're willing to do so, great. Mm -hmm. They'll come on the journey with us. Mm -hmm. um, so there's vast amounts of work that goes on, mm -hmm. uh, which people don't see. And perhaps, you know, we're, we're very transparent organizations. People can see exactly what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But perhaps we don't shout enough from the rooftops about the science and everything that goes on just below the surface mm -hmm. of what you see in the zoo yeah and i mean you have uh, obviously a conservation department um i know it's based in the zoo as you've maybe mentioned already but can you tell us a wee bit more about some of the conservation projects for example that rzss is working with so i mean our, our conservation work extends across the whole of our activities mm -hmm. uh, within the within the organization so it's not restricted to a, a specific department per se mm -hmm. so in some projects we're looking at things where we're actually restoring native species mm -hmm. um, such as pine hoverflies or scottish wildcats and that involves not just the science of species restoration and reintroduction but also the science and the the knowledge and skills of the keepers to care for these animals and make them ready and train them for the wild yeah um we've been doing a whole other range of work with the science around the beaver restoration in scotland mm -hmm. and uh, huge projects there one of the other things that we tend to do is also we will also fund a great deal of, of research. So we're funding work in the Pantanal around giant armadillos and uh, giant anteaters. So we're not directly doing the work, mm -hmm. but we can actually fund that work. Yeah, We've got a strong relationship and had for many years with the Bodongo Field Station yeah. uh, in Uganda. And indeed, our chimpanzee house here is called Bodongo. Bodongo yeah. And, you know, we're, we're sharing a whole range of, of work and collaborations with this field station so that we're creating, in effect, uh, a research and community station there, which is supporting the Bodongo forest mm -hmm. and helping to create uh, jobs and communities there so that in turn, mm -hmm. the people there want to protect and look after their chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge eclectic way of a, a way that we deliver conservation across the organization mm -hmm. um but actually i think you know in your specialism mm -hmm. where you talk around education i think we need to also understand and, and recognize the fundamental basis of conservation education mm -hmm. and and how we use the zoo as a resource to inspire and connect people to animals through our education work mm -hmm. if we don't do that if we don't get people and communities on side every bit of actual direct conservation work we do will fail mm -hmm. because we have to make sure that alongside a strong conservation work there is strong communities strong societies and the purpose of engagement Mm -hmm. to bring the two together mm -hmm. well you the hit big the, thing yeah i know you, you hit the nail on the head there i think when i was just thinking as you were talking that education sometimes people just think of it as maybe working with kids working with schools working with younger groups but 
but it's much more than that in terms of a zoo it's so much more than that as you say it's every single visitor who's coming through the door but also you know Edinburgh I know Edinburgh well it's a community it's like a big village really so as you say it's engaging the the local kind of community and the and the wider country as well so it's incredibly important I mean how how do you focus on that in it with RZSS I mean what what kind of things are you guys doing in regards to the education and and learning so there is a, a standard level of education sort of didactic teaching engagement with school groups mm-hmm. um working with curriculum based mm-hmm. uh sessions etc you know those are those are fundamental and, and actually it's not just with school groups but with with adult groups with yeah. different age groups but that education is one part of it. It is about engagement. Yeah. And what we've got to try and do is ensure that we're using our resources here, whether it be the animals, the space, the trees, the, the environment that's here to helping to connect people better to wildlife mm-hmm. and connect people better to nature. And this connectedness index is fundamental. Mm-hmm. We have become divorced from nature as a society and increasingly divorced from nature. Mm-hmm. And you know, just you just think about how you and I, how far we used to roam as kids. Mm-hmm. These days, kids don't roam. There's a yeah. whole reasons why they don't. But they don't climb trees. They don't get mm-hmm. dirty. They don't experience nature. Mm-hmm. And that experience is about this emotional connection to nature. Mm-hmm. So our education work, better describe it as our engagement work, is trying to work to make nature accessible to all. Yeah. Not just, you know, there's, there's a whole realm of audiences out there that may be financially challenged, mm-hmm. they might be physically challenged, they might be cognitively challenged, mm-hmm. but everybody needs that access to nature. Mm-hmm. So our first and foremost uh, objective is to, make, to be, make sure that we become the most inclusive and accessible visitor attraction, nature place in the world. That's what we want to do. <laughs> everybody needs their nature in their lives because better for it. Once we've done that, we've got to open up the accessibility to the animals Mm. because by doing that and not seeing them at a distance, we can actually increase that emotional connectedness to people. Once people have had those hairs turn up on the back of their neck Mm. or have been looked at by a chimpanzee or or just stared into the eyes of Yang Guan, Mm -hmm. they're then much more open Mm -hmm. to hearing about the the facts and the figures and the education and the learning about the animals Mm -hmm. but more especially they're open to learning about what they can do Mm -hmm. to protect these animals Mm -hmm. what they can do to become conservationists in their own lives Mm -hmm. how they can change their behavior so we stop climate change we put an end to biodiversity crisis Mm -hmm. because you know it's it's the power of the the masses of the public out there Mm -hmm. which is going to make these changes Mm -hmm. and we can drive people's innate and internal desire Mm -hmm. to protect nature we can pull all that together in some great army of conservationists we really can Mm -hmm. and it's all inspired by animals animals and nature have the such power to do good Mm -hmm. for individuals and for society Mm -hmm. and we've got to embrace that and to be honest I think that's a huge role for the zoo going forward yeah and I think thinking of the last year um trying to take some positives from it i think one thing in in scotland that i've experienced is that people are much more connected to nature in the sense that we've been in lockdown we've had we've had maybe one walk a day to go outside get our exercise i know a lot of people in my life who 
previously had not much interest in going and climbing mountains and going out walks or, or going places maybe like the zoo but now they've kind of got this recharged interest um in the natural world so i think hopefully a lot a lot more people are going to respect it going forward hopefully and and then also i mean i've got a huge passion for the kind of well-being side of it i mean i've been lucky the last few years of my life i've been working with young people and adults with disabilities and in, in particularly in regards to to nature and how um how much of a positive impact it can have on you working outdoors and being outdoors so i think we've really hopefully seen that as a well as I was going to say as a country but hopefully as a human race as well over the last year how, how beneficial it is to us well I think we have to look at that, that those positives for sure mm. and um, we mustn't lose those connections that, that have built up over this time we mustn't lose the fact that we can hear birds song we mm. mustn't lose the fact that we can we've got a renewed appreciation of all the daffodils that are coming out at this time so it's it's beholden to all of us that are are working in these these nature organisations mm -hmm. is to open up further, give more accessibility, feed what people want, mm. and that's really really important. And it's also the time now that you know all of the different people involved in nature conservation, animal welfare, all of this. Actually, we all need to come together mm -hmm. and, and really work for the for the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you touched on a really important there, point there is that the well-being, both of individuals and society, mm. is demonstrably better when you are exposed to nature. Yeah. I've been involved in a number of projects working within zoos uh, around social prescribing, mm -hmm. where we have cool. brought people into the zoo and just for bespoke volunteering programs and we've measured their well-being mm. on edinburgh warwick scales on on proper stuff we've been doing it we're not just saying this we've mm. been doing it properly and measuring it and evidencing it and we've seen 60 70 percent improvements in individual people's well-being mm. when they get more access to animals within the zoo yeah it's it's incredible but more especially some of these people have turned to me and said things like you know I, i'm now not afraid to come out of the house Mm. they've got a reason animals have done that mm -hmm. so you know there's huge opportunities for us and we had that an amazing report by um a professor das gupta mm -hmm. a few few weeks ago mm -hmm. about the economics of biodiversity mm -hmm. and it placed nature right at the very heart and soul of how we are going to uh how we can live mm -hmm. in as a society as a human race for the next forever mm -hmm. you know let's forget all of this GDP and all of this. Let's start talking mm. about measuring on happiness. Let's start measuring on our respect of nature mm -hmm. and how we pay for our free ecosystem services. Mm -hmm. Let's put nature at the heart of this recovery. Yeah. And I think that has to be the biggest call out to all politicians, to all leaders now, that, that actually environment and nature, that needs to be at the very, very top table alongside health alongside the finance and economics if we don't do that then the next pandemic is going to be around the corner yeah i mean exactly if we don't have a healthy planet then we don't have anything really um and i, I think a lot more people because of covid have realized that and have hopefully when things go back to some sort of normality they don't just go back into their old ways hopefully people do as you say keep moving forward and and really focusing on on the environment and how important it is to to look after it and also um how important it is to us and we we as the populace we mm. as the people 
we're the ones that can force our politicians into doing this mm -hmm. you know we as as nature conservation organizations we can lobby parliament etc but it's going to be the power of the people mm -hmm. that make politicians put in the, the the rules the frameworks the the money to make nature at the very heart of what we do mm -hmm. you know it's if if nothing else comes from this whole covid pandemic etc society has to learn is that society caused this yeah and we have the chance to actually prevent the next one yeah absolutely i mean there are so many problems obviously facing the planet today that we all know about and you touched on climate change there and in regards to the animals that you work with i mean habitat destruction the illegal wildlife trade poaching things like that um and zoos are obviously playing a huge part in not only helping as you said in regards to conservation projects but but educating and engagement and teaching people all about these things going on it can get it can get quite depressing thinking about all these things i feel working in conservation but some people i meet they're very negative they get quite down and sad i guess about the state of the planet and then other people are very optimistic and conservation optimism is a is something that's been i've been hearing a lot about particularly more recently which kind of category do you think you're in and why I think I can guess. <laughs> my my cup is not just full, it's overflowing. <laughs> you know, conservation works, absolutely works. It's been shown time and time again to work. Mm. What zoos do, work. What um, the wildlife trusts do, work. Mm -hmm. Conservation works. We just need to do more of it. Mm -hmm. Science works. Mm -hmm. Science has, has saved us from from this pandemic. That this vaccine is is you know scientists are the true supermen, mm -hmm. superwomen, super mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. You know it's 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 just incredible of what um, we can do. Mm -hmm. We just need to do more conservation. We need to do more science. Uh, put our faith in that, mm -hmm. and then we can find the resolutions. We can find the technological resolutions to climate change mm -hmm. we can do that if we've got the will to do it and we mm -hmm. need the will to do it nature can repair mm. it needs a helping hand and we've mm -hmm. got to give it as much a helping hand as we can and each of us in our different little remits that we're doing you know the zoo doesn't work on its own it's working with a whole range of other um organizations you know i i, I raised the saving wildcats project that's a collaboration of of a huge number of organizations mm. but not one of us could have done it on our own yeah that's fantastic if we can all come together we can find these resolutions conservation works we've proven it we just need to do more of it and we need to get the politicians to get behind it and listen to the scientists oh, absolutely you're right um and as I say, sometimes it's always better to light one candle than curse the darkness. There's a lot of bad stuff going Ooh, yeah. on. <laughs> there's a lot Absolutely. of bad stuff going on out there, but there's a lot of really good stuff going on, a lot of good work. Um, and you guys at, at RZSS are obviously showing that. So going back a wee bit to your, well, I mean, we mentioned at the beginning that you actually worked in Edinburgh Zoo years ago. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people listening to these podcasts, a lot of people I know are interested in getting into, you know, zoo work or conservation work and they're, they're trying to find ways in. So can you give us a bit of an idea of your background? You've got obviously a great deal of all sorts of different experience and how you kind of got into this line of work. Well, um, yeah. Uh, a number of years ago, actually not that long ago, it was about, it was August 1980, and I became a volunteer 
at Dudley Zoo okay. in the West Midlands. I was 12. And um, on my first day, almost my first day, I was feeding a gorilla. I was feeding this beautiful orangutan named Joe. Mm. Just, I can see him now. And I met one of my best friends of life, mm -hmm. which was a chimpanzee called mm. Coco, <laughs> who I still know, who was at Whipsnade Zoo now. And we're still the best of friends. And she comes running up. So on that day, I had one of that. I connected with wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, now, for me, that was that emotional experience that I just knew that how much animals meant to me. Mm. And I felt I could do more for them and more for, for wildlife. And then I, I just had these incredible experiences as I was growing up, getting closer and closer to such a range of, of animals. Mm. Um, kind of stopped going to school a little bit. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, you know, I was given immense opportunities by school, by my parents, by the zoo to have these animal experiences, mm -hmm. which drives me to want to give similar experiences to so many other people's. And that's part of my passion. Yeah. Now, you know, health and safety, the world has changed quite a lot since I was running around in shorts. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's incredibly more difficult for people to get into that type of work. Mm -hmm. um, I did go off and do a degree. Mm -hmm. uh, I did go off and work in a welfare charity for a while. But then I knew, knew I needed or I wanted access to to animals. So I, I went uh, and joined a small zoo in, in Wales and, you know, worked cleaning cages, really learning the business. Mm -hmm. You know, I had degrees, et cetera, but you did still need to work yeah. to learn the business. The competition for jobs these days is huge. Mm -hmm. It really is. And, you know, we'll get applications from phd students we'll get applications from degree students we'll get applications from people who just love animals mm -hmm. you know and so it's really hard for people to get into these days i would suggest for people wanting to get into the conservation zoo business is one of the best ways is volunteering yeah because we will look at academic qualifications we will look for those and certain jobs to require them mm -hmm. but there's a whole range of apprenticeships coming through, mm -hmm. particularly for zookeeping now, which is fantastic. Yeah. But personally, I will always also look to see what other people have done. Mm. If they've spent, you know, huge amounts of their time going counting and looking for butterflies or actually going along and, and litter picking on a beach and things like that, that means that somehow that connection to nature is already there. Mm -hmm. So that is hugely important to me. So I think I would, I would really urge people if they can take qualifications, mm -hmm. but there are other opportunities opening up, but the thing that's going to make the difference is what else you do yeah. in your life. So fill it with nature, mm -hmm. fill it with volunteering, fill it with doing good stuff mm -hmm. for, for society and enjoy it mm -hmm. because that's what's going to tip the balance in your favor when it comes to those, those interviews, mm -hmm. those really challenging interviews. Mm. No, you're right. I mean, when I was... When I came out of uni, I started volunteering in all sorts of different organisations from, I actually volunteered at Edinburgh Zoo, believe it or not, but I also volunteered with the Royal Hospital for Sick Children and all sorts of places. And oh. at that time, it wasn't really seen as necessary, whereas I feel now in more recent years when I've been interviewing people or, or speaking to, to younger students, it's almost seen as, yeah, you need it now because there's so much competition. But, as, but I would also agree, I would say you definitely standing out from the crowd a little bit and showing that you're you, you can get all the pieces of paper in the world. But as you say, you need to be able to physically, you know, if you want to be a zookeeper, you need to be able to work hard and, and do the physical work. Um, and that's the same if you're wor working in conservation in the field. You know, it, it can be quite a 
demanding job. So you have to be willing to roll your sleeves up and get on with it. And yeah, and there's a, there's a, a formal apprenticeships and informal apprenticeships that kind of have to be have mm. to be filled. Mm-hmm. And part of that is going out and getting dirty and doing the doing the stuff and experiencing it for yourself. Mm. I went out and did field work, and I swore to myself when I was halfway up a mountain in uh, on the island of Saram that I was not a field worker. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> you know you learn what's best for, for you by doing these different experiences. So go out, get outside enjoy nature embrace it mm-hmm. it doesn't always have to be in indonesia mm-hmm. it, you know the kangorms around scotland mm-hmm. it's an amazing place there's so much nature that's out there mm-hmm. and being able to talk about those experiences be able to show those experience that's what's going to make the difference in interviews mm-hmm. and also you hit you talked about the kangorms there i think that hits that's an important point because of covid for example people are getting to know their local areas a lot more. I mean, Scotland's a pretty small country, but but we might only be able to travel within Scotland, you know, for the next while. So so it is, it's nice for me to see local people kind of reconnecting with yeah. what's around them. You know, tigers are amazing and fascinating, but Scottish wildcats are, are even more important in regards to conservation. So it's nice for me recently to be able to talk to people about more Scottish species um, and what's going on in our own backyard. But, you know, I think that's, there's a, there's a really... Um, incredible journey that, that I've absolutely seen more so during this period of time mm. of people coming to the zoo because they want to see the tigers. Mm. But as we sit and talk to them mm-hmm. um, about the tigers, and then we talk about the wildcat, and then we go on to talk about the scabious mining bee, which we've got <laughs> a population of in, we get the kids as excited about trying to see if they can find a mining bee yeah. than they can after they've seen the tigers. Exactly. And that yeah. was glorious, absolutely glorious that that that, that happened. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's part of the journey. If we get people into this zoo to because they want to see a panda, fantastic. The pandas are, are amazing. But by the time they leave, I want them to be as excited about the pine hoverfly, the Scottish wildcat, the cairngorms, and what they can do for conservation. And mm-hmm. we do that. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most glorious feelings of accomplishment in the zoo yeah how can people learn more about royal zoological society of scotland or how can they support your work well as soon as you can come see us <laughs> i mean that's the that's the best way clearly you know we people go to our go to our websites and uh, there's loads of information there if you in, in every aspect that you might want to see if you want to learn more about the conservation side some of our conservation team are doing some great webinars and uh, mm-hmm. and video footage on there that you can really get into the the nubs of a pine hoverfly. But there's so many other ways that that you can support us. Membership, buying an adoption. But you know what? Come see us. Mm. We'd love to have you here. The animals miss you. We miss you. Uh, you know, I'd love to take this opportunity to thank everybody in Scotland for their most incredible support over this time. We wouldn't be here without you. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much, David, for giving us your time today. And I definitely can't wait to be able to come back and visit the zoo again. Hopefully it will be sometime soon. Look forward to it, Kate. Thank you very much. 